economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael. All right, so uh, we got like a fraction of a Levi today, because we're going to try to keep his big trap shut since he's nursing a little cough. So he's smirking right now, trying to see if that, that might make him cough. So we have uh, Jason and Jacob that are going to take the lead on some topics. Jason was uh, still into her next chapter or down the road in her Malcolm Gladwell book. So she had something to bring up here. What so, do you got, Jason? So this section, uh, the second section of Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, is about turning uh, disadvantages into advantages. And so one of the examples he uses is the London Blitz. Uh, the Germans decided that they were going to do a series of bombs over uh, several months to London, and they thought that London was just going to have a psychological break. No one was going to be able to handle it. If they built bomb shelters, no one would ever come out of them. They thought it was just going to completely destroy London. And in fact, the opposite ended up happening, uh, where a bunch of people did die, a bunch of people were injured, but for the majority of the population, they were called near misses. And so they, they basically went into it really terrified, found out that they survived a bombing, and then it turned into this, like, I'm, I'm just cannot be destroyed, like I'm invincible kind invincible of feeling. Invincible Superman feeling, okay. Yeah, and so people just went about their daily lives, like nothing was going on. And there were even some people who were said that they could get them out and they were like no this is the most exciting time of my life <laughs> and there are just so many accounts after this is world war ii time frame yes is that what, mm -hmm. with the bullets okay yeah and so people like there are just several accounts of people saying how crazy like this euphoric feeling they had after the bombing and it's just a really interesting like this too big to fail idea okay yeah too big to fail is kind of a hot topic with a Issues with asymmetric information in economics that causes some problems in general uh, To get some economic efficiency. We need basically equal information on on each side of the table to get an efficient exchange um, If the seller knows more information than the buyer or vice versa Then we can have some inefficiencies. So things like uh, food labels um, were developed so that we have better, more efficient exchanges between consumers and producers of food so that we know what's going into them. Uh, probably back in the day, 100 years ago, the snake oil salesman would come along and uh, be offering up the, <clears throat> the latest thing. In fact, my wife just told me this morning, I think we talked about this, that in Guatemala in the rural villages where her group, uh, Education and More, um, does some stuff, the some of the people there will come up with these, you know, crazy concoctions that uh, lime peels cure diabetes or something like that. You know, something that science wouldn't support one bit, but if you have an undereducated or uneducated population, then that opens the room for the uh, proverbial snake oil salesman to come to town and 
make some dough off some lime rinds or something. So, Jacob, what you got a story you said on, you're doing on a case study or something? In yeah, uh, over long-term capital management, which was one of the... Boring! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. okay, that's, it was one of the, the more dominant hedge funds in the, light, uh, the late 90s. And you see the impact of when, I mean, you just get so big in it. Was the, were these the guys that were the MIT geniuses, yeah. mathematical yeah, they, dudes they, that, uh, I thought it was like black capital management or something, but okay, uh, well, strong. Yeah, the, it was, no, the long-term long, capital management. Oh, long-term. Yeah, it was started by John Merriweather in 93, and he was a, uh -huh. a trader at Solomon Brothers and had two uh, Nobel laureates that had that they, they won the Nobel Prize in their work with right. derivatives. Yeah, with derivatives, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, the fund got so big. I mean, the first three years, the returns were like twenty-eight percent, and then it was like forty and forty-two percent the next two years. And so, they just extended themselves into almost every market, in particular emerging markets like Russia and Asia. And then, once the the Asian financial collapse started in ninety-seven. Um, not long after, the uh, Russian government devalued its rubles, which was their uh, currency at the time, which was like 10% of long-term capital's book, which was like $8 billion total, right? And so when it did that, all of the value of the funds started to go down, but it was in so many different emerging markets and parts of the American economy that when the, the funds started to go down, it was so alarming to the Federal Reserve that they had to essentially gather like this legion of banks and have like 12 banks come to these series of meetings to try to discuss strategies to get the hedge fund out until eventually all the assets was bought up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just, they got so big that the government couldn't let, even though the Federal Reserve themselves didn't bail them out, they had to facilitate a bailout for that. And you see a lot of parallels between that and the 2008 decline. Were they mostly adding liquidity in that case to allow an orderly wind well, down of well, the assets or, well, yeah, or was it, I don't think it was really taxpayer money for that one. No, it, was, it, was, it wasn't. It okay. was all the, the banks bought out the assets. Right. And, um, but part of it was the, the hedge fund and the people in charge. There was an initial Warren Buffett actually made an offer to buy it mm. um, as a whole, but he wanted to replace all the management. Yeah. And so the, the hedge fund managers actually realized that they didn't have to wait out the hedge fund. They just had to wait out a buyout until the, the, they got a deal that kept them in management. It sounds kind of similar um, in ways to Jason's story. What, what I, I don't remember who coined this, but the halo effect where because you've had maybe some early luck mm -hmm. uh, with the 28% returns or because you survived the bombing, you start to have this perceived mm -hmm. value well, in, in some way that um, can lead you to... Well, that's what I was going to kind of say is, I mean, she was talking about the, the bombing victims almost feeling like they were invincible. I mean, long-term capital management, they just kind of felt like they were invincible and didn't understand. They didn't care about the difference between risk and uncertainty. So they thought that they were just making all the right moves, judging off of risk, but they didn't understand like uncertainty of markets failing, like the Asian financial collapse. Yeah. Financial collapse. There we go. Yeah. So, I mean, more generally, the... The too big to fail stuff and asymmetric information brings up these big issues in economics of moral hazard and adverse selection. And so um, I like to just give my talk about the restaurant, going to the buffet if a restaurant owner wants to uh, open up a new place and go buffet style. They do their research. They find out that the average person consumes two pounds of food and they, according to two pounds of food, they come up with a price of $10 for the buffet. 
So there's two economic forces going on that they might not, if they don't anticipate, could be unprofitable for them. And the, so the first one would be adverse selection, which is pre-contract. Who are we attracting to the buffet? If they got their data on the average person that eats at restaurants, they might have uh, overlooked the fact that they're going to uh, attract some big eaters. And so maybe the people that they attract, if they're big eaters and they're the Ottawa University football team, they might be pounding down four pounds of food instead of two. And so had they thought about that, they would have priced it accordingly and maybe the meal would have been $15 instead of $10. But they missed that opportunity. And so that's uh, in some ways in the financial markets, we see that happening and in the insurance markets do, are we attracting risky people? And then the moral hazard argument is post-contract. So even people who are normally light eaters at the buffet face a very low marginal cost of going up and grabbing another plate of food. So even if the average person ate two pounds of food, once they've paid their $10 bill to get into the restaurant, they might find themselves getting out of their chair and scooping up more food than they wanted to even. Uh, because doing a little quick little marginal cost, marginal benefit while they've already paid their fixed fee to be there is pretty low. And so another plate of food sounds good. So they tend to overeat. And again, if the restaurant doesn't anticipate moral hazard, once again, they might have underpriced their food relative to where they should have been. So people need to think about these unintended consequences of how they set up policy with moral hazard and adverse selection. And so we see that in a number of different markets. So I don't know if that, does that sound like anything uh, related to some of the financial markets that you had? We got the too big to fail. So, you know, what do you think Do these, how do these well, I mean, companies they, behave differently if they if the government's got this too big to fail concept going? I think especially after like these first initial bailouts and the, I think, the, the, the bank bailouts that's happened in 2008, I think there was kind of a level of, if we get to a certain benchmark or something, if we get so big, we can't fail because it's gonna cause all these other things to happen. That would be almost worse than us failing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it is moral hazard because it almost forces that, well, I mean, they get to a point where it's like, I can't fail because it's the lesser of two evils. Right, right. And looking at the long-term capital management, I mean, it's not even just, the, the people in the company who think that, but it's also the people who have invested into the company yeah. who think that mm -hmm. too. Like there are a bunch of banks who are like, oh, well, maybe we should take our, like take it and run. And, but then they're like, oh, well, this is going to affect the entire market. And so if I do that, the ripple effect, and eventually it's going to come it's back to haunt me. Yeah. It's like a game of Jenga. And if I pull out, the whole thing might come tumbling down. Yeah. The classic example in our banking system is the FDIC insurance. Mm -hmm. So up to $250,000 of any account is going to be insured by the government, giving the depositor zero incentive to investigate who the heck bank they put their money in with, other than for some external. But as far as what the bank is doing with their money, mm -hmm. are they being responsible? Are they recklessly investing it somewhere? They don't care because we know that um, our money's going to be covered. And so that then allows the bank to possibly make more risky loans than they otherwise would. If they had to transparently show what they're investing in to try to garner support of depositors that, hey, your money's going to be safe with me. Uh, please come, look, at, look at what we invest in. 
it's it's relatively bomb proof we're well diversified blah 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 right mm-hmm. things that we don't we don't think about at all the way the US banking system has evolved prior to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 there was bank failures that didn't work but there was this accountability of should I put my money there or not and so Seems I'm not saying to throw out the system but I'm saying it's, it is another example of so how you think that is moral hazard well it, it's moral hazard of the of the banks right because once they have the the money from the depositors they're now potentially making different decisions than they otherwise would one of the things prior to the financial crisis was a new bank starts up and they're trying to compete with the existing banks, right? Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They raise their interest rate on deposits relative to their existing competitor down the road. Mm-hmm. So the big bank that's been there for 30 years is offering 4% on deposits and the new bank starting up, they're trying to put a big splash in the newspaper, 5% on on deposits, right? We're, we're going to come over to us right. and, and we're going to treat you right. And we, we're new and we're management, blah, 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 all the normal marketing stuff. Well, <clears throat> the depositor doesn't care because with the FDIC insurance, 5%, 4%, I'd rather take the five mm-hmm. as long as it's insured. And that's where relational banking makes a difference where, you know, maybe they've been there for 30 years and so they tend not to change. But once they go to that bank and the bank has committed to 5% interest, they still have bills to pay. So now they have to find loans that will provide a rate of return for their owners. Those oh, loans so are higher rates, which okay, are really, yeah. you got it, right? The risk reward trade-off that I have to find uh, riskier loans to um, justify the operations of the bank. And then of course, financial crisis comes, the riskier loans fail, that bank needs to be bailed out, right? And so that was kind of a cascading effect of what happened in our banking industry during the financial well, crisis. I wonder, uh, there's got to be a little fighting there too, right, with money market mutual funds because they obviously have higher returns, but there's no moral hazard, right, because they don't – because it's not insured, right, because that's why you would put it in a bank rather than a mutual fund. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about – Like a money market mutual fund? Uh, yeah, so a money market mutual fund usually would have at the bank, they would offer a money market mutual fund. But that's not insured, I thought. I think under – I think it can be characterized that way. Um, and what they're doing is they're paying a, they're calling it a money market account, uh-huh. I should say. So they call it a money, this is a money market account. And mm-hmm. what they'll explain is we give a higher rate of interest, but you have to have a minimum deposit oh, of $25,000. Okay. What the bank is really doing with the money behind the scenes is investing mm-hmm. it in money market mutual funds, which is really government T-bills that mm-hmm. are risk-free. Right. And so they have some money now that is pretty stable in the deposit area at having 25,000 and then they're able to make a little bit of money. You just learn T-bills aren't risk-free, they're default-free. Default-free, yeah, <laughs> just because the government can uh, run the printing press maybe and, and pay them off. But our, our U.S. government's been pretty good. Maybe after the break here, since this is faith in economics, I thought it'd be interesting to think about moral hazard and adverse selection issues in the Bible. Are there cases where uh, that can be found and so I I think uh, Jason you did a little Google search and what did you find John John 10 11 it was 12 and 13 I'm gonna start with 11 and uh, this is Jesus speaking here I am the Good Shepherd the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. 
The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus is the good shepherd, and he knows the sheep, and the sheep know him. So that's the John reading that I think is uh, illustrating uh, a kind of a special case of asymmetric information we call the principal agent problem uh, in economics. And so after the break, we'll pick it up from there. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailback episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience. Society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gorney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and Economics in Action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today. So I thought I'd uh, continue on here with the Bible verse just to make sure we had that uh, down in terms of the economics of it. So this is probably one of the better verses I've seen that highlight this issue. And I think it works for us as Christians in the workplace to think about how we structure possibly job duties, maybe compensation and other things on having our employees or people that we're with have a vested interest in what we're doing, uh, whether that's maybe a profit-sharing arrangement or a commission or, or um, other relational ways we can do that. And I think that's what Christ was talking about here, that he's with us in a, in a I guess, an ownership capacity if we're a believer and we were created by him that uh, we're here to do some work and um, recognize that relationship and, and dependence that we have. So I think this brings up some other interesting ideas on moral hazard and adverse selection that I'm probably stretching things. So feel free to send those emails once again to challenge my weak theology, theological background, or, and or economics and bring it on. Um, and we'd love to have some future episodes. But I'm thinking of moral hazard in a post-grace and pre-grace terms. So again, from my restaurant example, it's uh, overeating while we've, after we've paid the, our ticket to get into the buffet, 
that's the moral hazard part. And so I'm going to think about that as post-grace. So if we become a believer and we understand the grace of God and we feel like we're part of the family, do we change our behavior in different ways after we have that? And then on the flip side, I want to talk about pre-grace in that is it possible for wolves in sheep's clothing to come into our Christian communities and we are attracting evil or evildoers in the sense of taking advantage. So I'm thinking about prosperity gospel preachers who in the name of Christ come in and say, your life's going to be better, just send me some money. I don't know if you've listened to some of these TV evangelists over the years, but some of them can lay it on pretty thick on, even if you just have $100 left in your account, send it to me and I know that the blessings of God will will do miraculous things. You just have to trust me on that and maybe trust God or whatever. But essentially, I think uh, using the gospel for direct personal gain uh, while they're driving uh, maybe a Maserati and living in a mansion somewhere. So um, I think those are some neat things that we can think about as adverse selection and moral hazard issues. So from the Lutheran perspective, I think, you know, if you get, if you get that grace thing and you don't have any worries, do you, are you more likely to enter into sin or less likely? I mean, if you got that golden ticket, baby, then it's like, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. I can do whatever I want. I have that freedom because God's going to forgive my sins. Or, or does that erode that relationship that was spoke about in John's gospel? Jacob, you look like you've got the thought anyway. Oh, man, I'm, thinking, I'm trying, trying to think through so much of that. Well, I was thinking, so if you're a Calvinist, I'm asking you. Oh, so boy. If, you, if you're a Calvinist, do you get rid of moral hazard and adverse selection because you think it's all predetermined? So no matter what you do, it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> that's an interesting one. I, I mean, I think that's a related issue. Yeah. I mean, so if then, you, if we are determined um, what I'd hear and I'd, I'd invite any of our Calvinist uh, friends to, to write in on this, but my understanding is the Calvinist is always trying to determine if they are a member of the elect. So the belief mm. is that, yes, life is determined or deterministic, but we don't know that yet. And so you have to, you're kind of figuring out through your actions and living your life whether you are a member of uh, that group. I haven't heard it that way. And that's the uncertainty that the Calvinists face rather than somehow maybe, of course, divine knowledge, or, and maybe some people would claim So to maybe the that, moral hazard there would be not trying to find out? Yeah. <laughs> I think if you were... And just um, doing bad stuff anyway, because... Yeah, if you're a fair-weather Calvinist, or that, and that's your core beliefs, and what I mean by fair-weather is, like, every denomination, priesters, people who show up for Christmas and Easter or whatever, and they, they feel like they're part of the clan, cafeteria but... Catholics that they, yeah, they cafeteria Catholics, uh, you know, part-timers, whatever, however we want to uh, define them is if you feel like you're part of that clan and you've learned that, oh, well, my faith, everything's predetermined, right? And they haven't really put in a lot of theological brain power into it. Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, I think you're right. That, that could be a moral hazard thing. Like, oh, I'm already 
got the gateway and so it's already been figured out and mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about that. So you might change your behavior yeah. differently than maybe some others. You had something, Jason? No? I thought you were, I couldn't tell. Uh, Jason so, also has a, a mask on today that I probably don't need to get into, but she's trying to not get sick from Levi. Yes. So Levi, this has been I, kind of a fun I, episode. I Levi like all, silently <laughs> smirking there, and then Jason with the mask that I can't read her face. So what was, what was your point about grace and moral hazard? I kind of missed that part. It was kind of similar to what you were talking about on, on the moral hazard part, that are we taking do we start to take our relationship with Christ for granted so with those therefore we slip into sin a little easier because oh I'm gonna be forgiven anyway well I remember when there was those big uh, floods I think it was in Texas like from, uh, a couple months yeah. ago yeah and uh, I saw a bunch of people complaining about how those big mega churches were shut down but they weren't letting people like they weren't bringing people in that were displaced from their homes is that moral hazard I mean thinking similar to how like they collect this last hundred dollars or whatever is that moral hazard or is that more of them just being yeah. exploitative you know yeah I don't I wouldn't I don't I don't, I'm not seeing a moral hazard argument there mm -hmm. I'm just thinking they although it could be construed as that that I, well, I don't need aren't to you supposed to love or, your neighbor and right, right. are they as, and does the church they change your mind say we'll lock everyone out right we start to get into that subjective area where what, what does it mean to love your neighbor and okay and so i think from a lutheran perspective which might fall back into this moral hazard argument is that you're never going to live up to the law mm -hmm. you can't continuously perfectly love your neighbor in fact the law is not meant to do that anyway it's not the bar that you're supposed to get through your works and your deeds and your doing all the time but rather the law is meant to convict you to say you can't perfect your life. You can't live a righteous life. Confess your sins, repent, and live to, li live to another day, knowing that you can rest in the uh, family of Christ, that Christ stood in for your sins anyway. And then that kind of brings you back to the moral hazard part. And then mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, then I don't have to do anything. And then it's like, oops. And so, I mean, my little Russ philosophy on that is that if you truly believe that way, You'll, you'll start to slowly slide. Your, your relationship with Christ will slowly erode so that you eventually get to the point of, gosh, that was funny. Like 10 years ago, I used to be like into uh -huh. the church and stuff, but life is going pretty good now. It's like, I, I right. it's all about me. And as long as I'm having, making enough money and enjoying my relationships with others and doing my thing, eh, I'm fine. Right. Mm. And so I see it more as a slow erosion away from that. And, uh, Jason. So I was, this isn't class anymore. You, know, you, know, you could say, well, well you can't you, talk you, my I know that's true from the so facial expression. Just so you know, Jason was a student of mine and she's raising her hand. So I kind of felt <laughs> like we were in class again, which is fun. But, uh. So I was going to take uh, one of the ways you were explaining the moral hazard with uh, Christianity a different way. Instead of it's maybe not just like we'll we'll go out commit a lot of sin because we're we think we're saved by God and we can go out and do whatever we want now. Yeah. Um, but also there was a good example in Malcolm Gladwell's book about a preacher during the civil rights movement where he um, with the grace of God he he was attacked by some people who were trying to stop him and his church from you know sitting on the bus where they're not supposed to and things like that. And so they bombed his house and he came out completely unscathed 
And so from then on out, he just thought the grace of God, I'm completely protected. And so that, that might be another way that we look at this too big to fail with Christianity. Like we have a, maybe a false perception and that's such a tough one, right? Cause you don't, you know, maybe, maybe the Holy spirit is got a little thing around you, but I, I tend to think the scriptures points us back to using our reason mm -hmm. that we can't, that doesn't mean we can just run into burning buildings. Like anytime we haven't somehow turned into an invincible, you know, an invincible being. I think that that's, and was done by Christ and Christ alone to come back from the dead in, in flesh and blood to redeem us. So well, there's a hilarious example. I don't know if anybody else watches America's Got Talent. Okay. Um, but I do. Or I have. I don't watch it. I'm not a regular watcher. There's uh, one, one of the comedians that came on this last season, Preacher Lawson. Uh, he, he talks about how he's just terrified to get into the car with his grandmother because she just believes in God so much. That's like, God, take the wheel kind of thing. He's like, if I got shot in the chest, you'd be like, God, take the demons out of him. She's not taking me to a hospital. She's going to try and pray it away. And so that, that was just a really Okay. Oh, and and that's, that is the moral hazard part, right? Is that we're changing our behavior, thinking that nothing can happen to me, right? And, and so I think people might lose track of that they are still a human. And they are still facing maybe the law of physics or the natural laws that are around us that, yes, if there's a fire, you will get burnt, right? Can their faith always protect them? Are they invincible? I don't think the Bible supports that, that we all become invincible beings, right? That would be almost foolish to even argue. Are there circumstances of miracles in the Bible? Of course there are, right? And those are special, unnatural mm -hmm. circumstances that help support Jesus as Lord. Like we started, eyewitnesses started to see these unnatural events. Uh, skeptics and atheists will often say, well, anything that talks about uh, miracles, those aren't possible as we all know in, in today's technical age, and they dismiss those. And so then all of a sudden the Bible, of course, doesn't make much sense if you rule out miracles. But that's the whole point of it being a miracle right. and having eyewitnesses. So then it comes more like a court case where you have circumstantial evidence, you've got eyewitness accounts, you know, did it happen? Did it not? How many, how many people support it? How many people refute it? You know, is there anything else that, that throws it out? And, and uh, people all over uh, Jerusalem at the time were looking to overthrow this man who thought he was Lord, right? They had every incentive in the world to say, there's no way this guy's Lord. So they would have, I mean, my personal beliefs is that that would have been debunked if there was evidence. There was many more people trying to go contrary to what his claims were rather than supporting it. He had a smaller group of supporters, eyewitnesses that thought, saw the things he did, many more people trying to overturn it. So if there would have been evidence, um, I think that it would have shown up. So... All right, last thing I'll throw out there just uh, as we start to wrap up, because I didn't want to let this go, is um, potentially the adverse selection problem that we have with false prophets, which are talked about in the, in the Bible, uh, people coming up for their personal gain, the preacher, the prosperity gospel. Um, we've had some unfortunate events of some child abuse cases out of the Southern Baptist um, down in uh, Dallas, Texas area, I think some of the big churches down there where men in authoritative positions 
within the church were using that to their advantage. And there was kind of a cover-up thing. And of course, we know there's been some of that in the, in the Catholic Church with the recent dismissal, I think. Is that right? You can nod your head, Levi. Dismissal of yeah, some, uh, Bishop yeah. McCarrick or McCarrick something? McCarrick was, uh, was defrocked. The Notre Dame rescinded his... Um, uh, he had an honorary degree from Notre Dame that right. was rescinded, and I think they're sending him to a, to a monastery. So the point with the adverse selection thing is that it, it potentially, we have to be on guard. What's the Bible verse? Uh, something as serpents. Oh, sorry, I'm drawing a blank. This is showing my lack of Bible knowledge. Savvy as serpents, gentle as lambs. Come on, no, no. nobody's remembering that one. Well, like a butterfly sting, like a bee. Oh, something like that. We had to bring back some Muhammad Ali to carry it off. Yeah. So hopefully you listeners know maybe what I'm, I'm thinking of. But we have to be on guard for that because we do possibly invite people with evil thoughts or deeds to the table that will use our faith to their advantage or their personal gain. So... We need institutions, systems in place. I think the Southern Baptist Church, for instance, said that they need to revise things so that stuff like this doesn't happen. Is there a reporting procedure so that 16-year-olds feel comfortable if they feel like they were violated? Who do they go to that they don't just have to sit in fear and feel isolated so that they have institutions in place that have proper channels to bring this up to the authorities? I think the Catholic Church is active in trying to have some sort of process in place as well. Uh, to safeguard against these events, and hopefully that can that can work. So these are just the economic issues, moral hazard, and ever selection. Been kind of a fun, fun thing to kind of work in some Bible angles. So I think we'll leave it at that. I'm seeing some head shaking. So everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what you're listening to, um, we'd love to have you do a little donation, maybe even just five bucks or twenty-five bucks or whatever. We go to the Gortney Institute and support us, or those five stars on iTunes would be great. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. We'll talk to you later.